Amen. Can you hear me all right? That's good. I've still got a bit of a sore throat, so um, hopefully I will not start to dry up as I, I speak. But, uh, it's just great to be here. As Nigel said, we started a, a series. Let's get on to... Ooh, let's get back. Uh, we started a series entitled The Story of God. This idea, this kind of meta-narrative looking at the whole Bible. The idea that we're unpacking this idea that the Bible is a unified story. You know, you might have remembered a few weeks ago, I, um, if you came here yeah, a few weeks ago, I gave everybody a piece of jigsaw. How many people still got it? Oh, that's a few people. I keep finding them in all sorts of random places. But the idea is, when we look at the Bible, the whole Bible is a bit like it was a picture. And, um, and it really helps you when you have a little piece of jigsaw. You know when you have a little piece of jigsaw and you're trying to figure out, how does this fit into the overall picture? And when you have the main picture, it helps you slot it in. And this idea is, what we're trying to do in this kind of series, this small series, which is part of the year of biblical literacy, um, that Nigel started last week and we got another four talks on, is looking at the whole Bible, looking at, let's say, this picture, this jigsaw. Because then it will help us understand as we're reading the Bible, how does this fit in? Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as when we come to read the Bible, like any other book, um, we don't always start from the beginning. This is confession time. How many people are what I call dippers? You kind of dip in. I if my wife didn't put her hand up, I was going, yeah, I was going to point her out. <laughs> she often tells me if I leave a book lying around, she, might, she starts dipping into it, which, can be, which is lovely. It can be a little bit annoying because I start from the beginning. That doesn't mean I always finish. Um, and so when she kind of tells me something that's kind of like halfway through, I'm like, just, oh, just let me get there. And then there's other people, you know, out here, particularly maybe when it comes to kind of murder and mystery. My daughter's like, like this. She can't live with attention. She's the same when it comes to kind of shows like British Bake Off. She needs to know, she'll always find out who's won, and then she'll watch it. Uh, I won't say which one of my children. But how many of you like that when it comes to reading a, a murder mystery book, you want to know what happens? No, nobody? Oh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's at least one being, being honest, whatever. But we're trying to look at the whole book, the whole Bible. We've said this again and again. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And so we're trying to look at the whole thing, starting as Nigel did last week, right at the beginning, and then making our way through. So Nigel focused in last week pretty much on Genesis chapter 1 and a little bit of verse 2. This idea of creation, this idea of what we can look all around, even here I can see some aspects of, of beauty. And then we talked about creation, this idea of creating us. And one of the things that's distinctive about us in relation to the rest of creation, we're told that God said he made us in his image. You know, and that's important. I, um, I have a, I've got a few illustrations today. I must say I borrowed them from somebody called um, Putty Putman. Is it Putty Putman? Pullman? Yeah, he's an American. I mean, you don't know many people called Putty. 
And, uh, you know, so I've got a 10 pound note here. Hopefully you've seen the 10 pound note before. And um, whose image is on it? The queen. So is this the queen? No, it's an image of the queen. But hopefully, particularly if you imagine days before when there weren't things like TV, TV, all you'd know is the queen looks like this. Or, you know, years ago, before TV, it would probably be a king. But if the queen walked in, you would recognize the queen because you're like, I've seen your image. And when we were created, we were created, maybe more like a 50-pound note, but I don't generally have one of those notes. We're valuable, we're important, but we carry the image of God so that when people see us, they should be able to see God. And so if God kind of came in, you better go like, that's God, because I recognize the image that is there. And so that's kind of roughly where Nigel kind of finished in, in the sense of the section he was looking at. And I start in Genesis, if you have a Bible, it's too much to kind of put up. Um, so if you have it on your phone or you have a you know, paper po- copy, you, you do know they do the Bible on paper copies nowadays. Um, and, and starting at verse 15, whoa, this is a small type font. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and care for it. But the Lord God gave him this warning. You may eat freely any fruit in the garden except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. So the Lord God formed from the soil every kind of animal and bird. He brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam chose a name for each of them. He gave names to all the livestock, birds, and wild animals. But still there was no suitable companion for him. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the place from which he had taken it. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. At last, Adam exclaimed, she is part of my own flesh and bone. She will be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, although Adam and his wife were both naked, neither of them felt any shame. Now, moving into chapter three. Now, this shepherd was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really? He asked the woman. Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit in the garden? Of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God says we we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. You won't die, serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be open when you eat it. You'll become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. The woman was convinced the fruit looked so fresh and delicious that would make, and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her. 
Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and they were suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they hung, sorry, sorry. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Towards the evening, they heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves amongst the trees. The Lord God called to Adam, where are you? He replied, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Yes, Adam admitted. But it was a woman you gave me who brought me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, how could you do such a thing? The servant tricked me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you will be punished. You are singled out from all the domestic and wild animals of the whole earth to be cursed. You will grovel in the dust as long as you live, crawling along on your belly. And then he just carries on with some of the other uh, implications of the sin. And so we get in this passage, kind of building one now I just said, this passage is often referred to this phrase, the fall, when sin enters the world. And we begin to see this kind of tread go through the scripture of sin and, and particularly Will Law, who speaks next week, will be, will be building upon it. And we get to see some of these common themes I'm going to touch on coming up and again and again. It's like a microcosm of what's going to happen up to at least the life of Jesus. This idea of God pursuing us, this idea of God asking again and again, where are you? This idea again and again of God intervening into our lives, into our situations and bringing change. We've been changed by what's happened. Katie, my pretty assistant, can you give me a hand so this doesn't go wrong? That's what I want. Now the question is, who's got more steady hand? You want this one first. So I gave the illustration of a... <laughs> I gave you an illustration earlier about kind of the image of God. And so imagine that here we are, we're a clear bottle. We've been made and God put his image in us so that we would reflect him. So when people see us, They would see the nature of God. They would see his goodness. They would see his mercy. They would see his kindness. That was one of the reasons we were made, so that we would show God in his utter beauty, God in his utter glory. However, as we just read, if we just stopped here, where Nigel was last week, we would have just stopped here. However, as we're reading in the, the passage, hopefully this will work because I went for primary colors. <laughs> I had to look it up because I couldn't remember. <laughs> that sin came along and so we got the image of sin I can use a little now and shake it yes and so now we still have that image of God, because that's been put in us. But we also got the aspect of sin that has marred us. And um, it does a few things. One, I'm not going to start throwing this everywhere, though we haven't got the new carpet. 
But the idea is that when we people bump into us, when people encounter us, we begin just to overflow some of this aspect of what's here. And so we see even here, we begin to see some of this splash over. We see jealousy. We see accusation. We see fear. All these things begin to spill out of us because what has happened in us. And that wasn't what it was meant to be. And this gets passed on. You want to pour it in? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't trust me. And there's a special word. Yeah, you can do it. Well, you can pour as much as you want, maybe at least half. There's a special word we use theologically, this idea of what's called original sin, this idea that gets passed on. So within us, there is this, still this possibility of the image of God. You know, when you encounter people and you see things and you think like, wow, the good things that we overflow, but there's also that aspect of sin, this idea we pass it on from generation to generation. Thank you very much. Let's make sure that doesn't get knocked over. And uh, yeah, one of the things about sin is it just messes us up. Let's get that right. It distorts us. We weren't made to be like this. And in some ways I'm going to touch on some stuff, uh, and particularly Nigel in a few weeks, when he gets to share, you kind of start beginning to hear about Jesus and how he rectifies that. But we begin to see some of those implications. You know, I'm kind of focusing on the first few chapters up to 11, then World Law is going to start on chapter 12. But even if you read very quickly through the first kind of chapters between chapters 2 and 11, you just see this overflow of just how the image of sin has entered us and begins just to affect everything around us. It gets messy. I was thinking about this this morning. Those who know me know I love illustrations. And I was just reminded, it's a bit like a 110 hurdle race that goes wrong. And as you read the first few chapters of Genesis, it's a bit like that. And if you can't imagine it, I've seen these races before, where you've got Adam and Eve, and they just hit, they represent humanity. And they hit that first hurdle, and it just goes everywhere. And then as you go, you know, literally the next chapter, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you hear the story about Cain and Abel, uh, where Cain kills Abel, again, because of pretty much jealousy and trying to understand God, and you've got another hurdle that just goes flying everywhere. Then you have the story of the, the, the flood, and mankind trying to do things by themselves and without God. And then you get this another hurdle flying everywhere. Hurdle after hurdle as you go through Scripture, or the effects of sin. And if you know anything about it, when you, when you sin, it affects you. I've seen sometimes before in 110 hurdle. Somebody hits the hurdle so badly, the hurdle flies up and it just goes into somebody else's lane. And we see this again and again. You know, often people talk about sin and the effects of sin and why it happens. It's because of this. It's a very simple illustration. But the reality of it, we see, not just in the story of the Bible, we see every day in our everyday lives when we look at things that are happening around the world and we so often ask, why does that happen? Sin has that effect on our lives. But sin also has some other effects that we see in this passage and they go on and on through the scripture. And one of them is, <coughs> it affects our identity. One of the things that we find in chapter one is 
this idea of who we are and who we are created to be. You get this kind of twin aspect of identity and destiny. We were made to reflect the image of God. That is who we are. And as we saw, it gets marred. And we've been robbed of it. Now, uh, my talk could be quite negative because I'm kind of just dealing with this passage, but I am going to bring some aspects of hope in it. Because one of the things that we find in Jesus is that we begin to get our identity restored. As followers of Jesus, we should begin to start walking into who God ultimately has made us. But we have to fight for it. It's a bit like identity theft. I don't know if anybody's ever had their identity robbed. Occasionally I get messages on Facebook where somebody goes, my Facebook account has been hacked. And you're getting these messages and they're not from me. And I probably think that's probably the, the, the least worrying aspect of identity, threat, um, identity theft. But this idea, you know, when you have to take care, you know, when people are sending you information, what's it called, phishing or something like that? Uh, yeah, with a P. Uh, I have trouble pronouncing P and phishes are not the best way to say it. But, you know, that you get warned, take God, take care. People are trying to steal your identity. And that happens on the physical level, but also happens on the spiritual level. As a follower of Jesus, we're told that we are sons and daughters of Christ. We're told that we are more than conquerors. We're told that we are overcomers. And I could go through a list after list of who we are. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I allow myself to get robbed. And just like we're told to be really careful in the sense of guarding our identity in the pieces of paper and who we give information to, we have to be vigilant as followers of God. Where have we allowed ourselves to be robbed? You see, ultimately, you live out of your identity. And if you don't know who you are, you cannot live out of that place. Or you'll begin to try to get your identity from other things. The other thing that happens, and so you get that for the whole story of the Bible, is this idea of destiny. And identity and destiny are very closely together. This idea of what you are for. We're told that Adam and Eve were given authority to rule and to reign. But we also know that in this story, because of their actions, they gave their authority over to Satan. And you see this again going through Scripture. And again, Nigel will hit with this in a couple of weeks' time, where there's even a story where Satan offers the authority of all the earth to Jesus. And it's like, can you do that? Yes, because in this passage, it was given to him we lost something this story is more than just for and sin it's to do with identity it is to do with our destiny you know generation after generation and it's not just to do with the young are asking who are they why am I alive what's the purpose that question is not a new one It's maybe a little bit more obvious now, but it started right here 
in that garden. It's one of the reasons in this church we often talk about this idea of a, a trusted ruler. One of our kind of values that we have in this church is this idea that we have to keep coming back and reminding ourselves who we are and what we are for. We've got to hear God speak over our lives again and again who we are and what we're for, not we'll look for it somewhere else. And kind of jumping ahead in some ways, it's, it's hard not to do so. But if you kind of feel like, why is Paul making such an issue of this, this idea? Partly because I see the mess and the implications of it all around me, both in my life and the lives of those around me. But it's interesting in the New Testament that God the Father only ripped heaven open three times to speak. Once, if you know the story of the baptism, where there's an audible voice and he goes, this is my son who I love with whom I'm well pleased. There's a couple more instances. One of them you only find in the book of John. And God, you know, if I was God, I was going to rip heaven open to speak. I don't know what you would do. It's probably a good thing I'm not God. But I don't think I would use it to kind of say, speak identity, worth, and destiny over Jesus. I might yell like, listen to him. You know, he's the savior of the world. You know, follow him. No. Heaven was ripped open. God spoke audibly three times because of the importance of identity. Do you know who you are? Some of you, and I mean, talking about this phrase about being a follower of Jesus, to being a son and daughter. For some of you, that's just a strange concept. Maybe you're just visiting um, church this morning and thank you for coming. But maybe this idea of what I say, this identity where I call myself a follower of Jesus, doesn't seem to make much sense to you. And I'd encourage you, if you're here and you're on a journey, a, a journey in relation to God, come, maybe come and speak to myself or Nigel afterwards. Because that's ultimately what we were made for to reflect the image of God. And some of the things that Nigel mentioned earlier, like peace and hope and joy, are ultimately only found when we become who we were made to be. But God wants to restore. It's been in the news over the last few years, some great stories of how not to do restoration of artwork. <clears throat> and uh, here's, a, here's a couple. The before restoration is on the left, attempted restoration is on the right. I like to use the word attempt. Um, the tall one is, well, interesting. The bottom one you think, you might not even recognize unless you looked in detail that they actually are the same thing. And... Um, <laughs> In both cases, probably the intentions were, were good. Because we're a bit like those images. We have been marred. Sometimes it's just life wears us down. Sometimes it's just the, the grime, it's sin, some of the things that we've been talking about. We all need restoration. It's a question of who we're going to allow to restore us. I didn't put it down as one of the questions, but it'll be a good question. Who are you going to allow to restore you? I'm going to give you some questions in a minute. I didn't want to give them to you too early, because you'll look. 
But we want God to restore us because he draws out, you know, particularly the one at the top. He will draw out the right pigment. A great restorer figures out what's the pigment, the original pigment. And he knows you and I because he made us. And he wants to restore us. Do we want to be restored? We have a choice in this. He brings out, there's things I believe that God wants to restore. There's things that have been buried for years. That can mean many different things to you. One of the things that came into my mind and at heart was praying was kind of restoring and creativity. There are people here that when they were younger did creative stuff. Maybe music, maybe all, whatever that looks like. And God wants to bring it out again. And when I talk about restoration, one of the other things that came into my mind is some people have been marred by some of the experience of church. Church should be the vehicle that God uses to bring out restoration. But for some people, it's marred them. And I feel like God's saying today is a good day to let the master restorer restore you. And it'll be an opportunity at the end, but you don't have to wait to the end. I often say when I'm speaking, I prefer you hear God's voice and you hear my voice. But just allow God begin to restore you. God always wants to involve us in restoring and changing things. One of the aspects I particularly want to draw attention to, if you were, when we read that passage, that one of the jobs that Adam and Eve were given was to, um, was to name things. You see that Adam... God brought the animals to Adam, and he named them. Now, in our kind of environment and culture, we don't appreciate it. Having lived in the Middle East, I appreciate it a little bit more because names are important. When you name something, pretty much in the, the whole of the rest of the world, it's just not, you're not just giving it a label. You are declaring the essence of what this thing is going to be. Again, you see this again and again through scripture. When God wants to do something big or bring a transformation into somebody's life, he often gives them a new name. But this was part of who we are and who we're meant to be. We were given the role of naming things. But when we fall and we lose our sense of identity and destiny, rather than being part of the solution where we name things as they should be, begin to rename things not as they should be. I don't know some of the names and labels you have. I was quite fortunate as a child uh, when it came to nicknames. I had, I had two nicknames. I was called Colombia. And for those who don't know, I was born in the Republic of Colombia. I, I don't know how many children called me Colombia and had no idea. Just because, you know, people my year called me Colombia and then subsequent years just called me Colombia. That was my name. Um, in the, the playground, probably not knowing why they called me Columbia. The other one I got called was Roadrunner. And they, actually, generally, they didn't call me Roadrunner. They just went, beep, beep. <laughs> I'd walk down the corner and people would go, beep, 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 beep. And just because I used to do a lot of running at school. So I was quite fortunate. But you, each one of us, sometimes it, the things we like, sometimes the things we don't like, we get labeled. We get given names. As soon as we get those names because of things that have happened in our life, and we become acutely aware of that when we fill forms in. As soon as we get those names just because there are roles that we have, like job. You know, I am a husband. 
Katie, I'm a father to my four children. However, ultimately, our names should come from God. Because some of these roles change. Or things happen that change that label that we have. And our lives fall apart because ultimately our identity and our worth and our value needs to come from God. And so one of the questions, Katie, you can start giving these out. This is about halfway down, but I gave some questions because one of the things that we're doing in this church as part of this year of biblical literacy is we're engaging in the Bible corporately here, but also encouraging people to get involved in what we call a life group. A life group is a, a smaller place where we can wrestle with some of these things and think through some of the things that we're hearing on a Sunday. And, um, and one of the things we said as part of the kind of preaching team is we were going to create some questions. So these are some questions. If you're not in a life group, I'd encourage you to be in one. Or if not, just um, try to find three or four other people who you can be real with and just to work through some of these questions. And one of the questions I put halfway down in relation to this is, who is going to name you? Who is going to call you who you really are? When you scratch away at, and some of those names you might be good at. You know, I was just thinking, not picking on you, Debbie, but you know, you've got this, you know, you're in charge of chaplaincy. But she's way more than chaplaincy, being in charge. Because if for some reason, maybe in a year, five, ten years' time, she starts being a chaplain, her life doesn't come to an end. Because ultimately, her identity should be in God. And you can apply in different situations. But who's going to call you what you ultimately are? And how are you going to be part of the solution? We are called to rename people. To say, this is who you are, and this is what God has called you to. You know, we have this phrase in church. If you've been around the church for a while, we say one of our kind of vision statement is to call, invite our city into life. And that can mean different things, but one of the easiest ways, the most obvious ways of doing that is, all around us, there's brokenness and there's hurt and people that have been named and given names that are not the name that God gave them. And we can partner with God and give them their, their name. He wants to be part of that. Well, hopefully some of you. Calling out the names that God has for us. So identity and our destiny and this idea of right name calling, this all kind of goes pear-shaped here in chapter 2. There's a couple of other things that happen quickly. One is you get this, you get this phrase at the beginning of the end of chapter 2. It says they were not ashamed. They were naked and they weren't ashamed. And later on, you get after the fall where they say they were ashamed. Shame comes in. You don't talk a lot about shame in the Western church. Again, if somebody has worked across the world, and particularly amongst Muslims, honor and shame are huge. But you know what? It's also big in the Western world. When I said the word shame, I suspect for a number of us, we have things that went through our mind. They are things that we are ashamed of, things that we've done, maybe things that we're in at this very moment in time, regrets. Self-hatred. 
things that we fear maybe if other people found out about or really knew what's happening. And one of the things I believe that God wants to do today is, in a sense, again, jumping ahead in the story because I didn't want to just stay in chapter 2 to 11, is that God wants to come and take away shame. We're told that Jesus came to do many things and one of them was to take away shame. Maybe let's just shut our eyes for a second for a little bit of time. This might not apply to all of you, but I suspect a great percentage of you have got things in your life that you're ashamed of. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come. I think it's important to say, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to bring shame. Because the Holy Spirit only came to convict the world, those who don't know Jesus, in regard to unrighteousness. But the Holy Spirit always comes to encourage and build up. And just ask him to come and restore and to heal. I believe God just wants to kind of hit us. I, I was listening to this song. It's an old, well, it's not an old vineyard song. It's a newer one. We don't, I don't even know if we ever played it in this church. It's called No Longer Strangers. And there's a great summary of some of the stuff I've been saying. It has this, um, the line starts off like this, beautifully made by nature of fallen. By grace, I have been raised. You are calling me. You are calling me. I am coming home. And when we have shame, it causes us to distance ourselves from God. A bit like Adam and Eve just hiding. There's things that we've just hid, areas of our life. And I first believe the first thing that God is just reminding us is, you are beautifully made. By nature, you might have fallen, but by grace, you have been raised. And he is calling you home. Again, I don't have time just to unpack it all, but I feel again there's maybe just maybe one or a couple of people are here. Maybe for years and years, you kind of drifted from God. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church for a long time. And God is saying he loves you and you're beautifully made and he's calling you home. And again, if that applies to you, I would encourage you just to come and speak to Nigel or myself at the end. And help you kind of respond to that invitation. So God, I just pray that you would just meet people here. You would meet us here, God. You're the God who takes away shame. You're the God who restores. You're the God who brings hope and life. And Lord, areas where there's just shame, areas where there's brokenness, God, areas where there's fear, just come, God. Come and move. Come and restore. Come and bring life. Come and touch, God like you did in scripture where you just stepped in and you touched, you spoke, and you changed. There is nothing that's too big that God can't restore it. There is nothing too broken that God cannot repair it.
lastly, just to conclude before I hand over to Nigel, one of the things that was lost and you see again being wrestled through the rest of the Bible is this idea of do we trust God? Do we trust that he is good? Nigel was talking earlier about this need to, i trying to remember how Nigel phrased it, but he was just talking about Hebrews and, and faith and having confidence in who God is. And that can mean many things, but I feel one of the ones that is, is crucial is this idea of the goodness of God. I heard somebody once say that if we do not understand and grasp the goodness of God by the time we hit our middle age, we will have a midlife crisis. I thought it was an interesting phrase, but this idea is, do we really believe that God is good? Oh yeah, thank you for clicking it on. <laughs> Lost my place. Do we really believe that God is good? Because without a clear conviction of God's goodness, it's not possible to develop the clear focus and life of faith that God is calling us to. If we want to be a church that impacts our communities, if we want to be a church that sees transformation, we have to live, have it settled in our lives, deep down conviction that God is good. He has good things for me, has good things for those around me. That he is more good than we could ever believe. I'm going to share a story and then I'm going to pray and then hand over to Nigel because my time's gone. But God challenged me about five or six years ago about how good he is and how I needed to expand in my understanding. Because it's easy to say God is good. If I was in the States and I said God is good, Americans would always respond, you know, he's good all the time. They have this little <laughs> reply. And it's easy to say that, but it's way more difficult to live from that place. And sometimes we need to remind, and one of the questions I put on your sheet is, is how are you, how am I, going to keep reminding myself that God is good because we have things that happen in our life that cause us to doubt all the time. And so it has to be a proactive choice to keep pressing in and saying, God, you are good. This might be happening in my life, but God, you are good. This might be happening around me, but God, you are good. And sometimes we need reminders of Scripture and sometimes we're reminded of things that happen. And sometimes I go back to this story, I remember... Five or six years ago at this Christian festival called A New Wine, there was a guy called Alan Scott speaking, a vineyard pastor, and he was teaching on healing. And God began to do some strange healing. And one particular bit of healing that he did was um, he was praying for people who had metal in the body and therefore it restricted what they could do. They had had an operation or something and had metal put in. And so they couldn't do certain things. I remember one person in particular had had a motorbike accident and it had metal all through his body. He was alive, but he pretty much was kind of like robotic. He could hardly move. And they prayed for him, and just the metal began to bend, while at the same time the metal carried on doing what it was doing, which was holding his body together. Now, when I saw that, I was like, wow, because I hadn't you know, seen or heard anything like this. And so that blew my mind, and going like, God, you're good. But then the next day, um, I can't remember if he said this even specifically, but God began to take away scars. And so this man who'd had all these operations to put metal on his body, he came up and he goes, my scars have been taken. And I was like, wow, that's just, you know, it's great. He's healed him, 
That was like an extra bonus. He took away the scars from the operation. That is a good, good God. And there were also a number of people there who'd self-harmed. And so they'd done stuff to themselves. And God just come up and took away the scars. The reminders they had all over their body of stuff they'd done in the past. And I looked at that and things like that just remind me, God is so good. And I believe one of the things that God wants to remind, for some of you it's harder, and maybe as you come forward for opportunity prayer, Nigel, when you, you come up, is sometimes it just helps to have somebody stand next to you and just remind you and speak that over you. that God is good. And because he's good, there's a lot of Nigel might have some ideas, but I do really believe that he wants to do some healing. He wants to do some restoration. There's some shame he wants to take. And there's some hurt that he wants to take away. And why don't we just invite the Holy Spirit to be here? And hey, you guys, you young people at the back, why don't you come and join in with this? Don't just hang around, because God's here. And uh, I feel like you're meant to be part of this as well. So Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you and our lives. And we welcome your presence here. And we choose to allow faith to rise up inside. As we've heard the story from the Bible of how sin entered the world, and as we also know that your story is rescue and identity and renaming and reshaping and reforming and restoring. And you're in the business of restoring right now. And in a second, I'm going to give you an opportunity if you want to specifically respond. Um, if you have anything wrong with you, <laughs> I just feel like the Lord wants to minister to those who are sick and those who are not well it could be as minor as a cold or flu or it could be something a bit more major but if you have anything wrong with you and you love us to, we would love to pray for you because God is about restoration so if there's anything physically physical ailments we'd love to pray if there's something that's restricting movement if you have metal in your body, we would love to pray because God's Spirit is here. We choose to allow faith to rise up. If you feel like you don't know who you are, we'd love to pray. God is here. If you feel like you have been overcome by stuff, circumstances, life, you might want to call it sin. If you feel like you know you've made some decisions or some choices in your life that perhaps weren't the best. God is here. The guys are going to play some worship music just real gentle, but I would love to invite you to come. And there is nothing special or magic about standing at the front. I joked around at the start of the service that the Holy Spirit was here. He's not, he's everywhere. But when you come out of your seat, something happens and faith rises up. So when you take a stance and you make a physical movement and say, yep, I'm, I'm up for this. God, I need you. God, I want you. God, I want to identify with what he's talking about. Sometimes that causes things to happen in our hearts that just open barriers to, for God to come. So if you'd like to be prayed for, if any of those things apply.
Why don't you come stand in this space with me?